you got your Bibles or your tablets, whatever, um, whatever device you're using, go ahead and open them up to the book of Luke. The book of Luke, chapter 2. I know the band was rocking pretty loud, and you guys had to turn me up a little bit to get over the band, so I'm going to ask you all to bring me down so that I can talk a little bit louder than a whisper and save some eardrums this morning. Starting a new series today called Reflections as we go into the Christmas season because I wanted us to begin to look back at what Christmas is all about. It's about Jesus. It starts with him and it ends with him. It's all about Jesus. And I think sometimes we can get so busy with life that we lose sight of that, you know. Pressures because of work being short, money being short because of a global pandemic right now. Pressures just to life in general. All the busyness that comes with this time of year. Do we have enough money to buy presents or not? And sometimes we lose sight of the ultimate present that was given to us so long ago in Jesus. So I want to go and start in the, the book of Luke, chapter 2, and share a message with you. It's simply entitled, Grace Came Down. Grace Came Down. We're celebrating in this season the grace of God, the gift of Jesus to us, who made a way where there was no way, who helped us when we were helpless, who gave us hope when we were hopeless. You remember this, right? Sometimes the world can kind of sit heavy on you, and you lose sight of that. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 6, says, And while they were there, talking about Mary and Joseph, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And remember that, we're going to come back to it in a second. And laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. I probably would be too if I was out in the field and then suddenly a bunch of angels just appeared up in the sky. I'll be honest with you, I probably need to change my pants after that. That would probably be crazy. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in, this, in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. All heaven was rejoicing. All heaven was shouting. All heaven was having a party because they knew what was happening. The world had never seen anything like what was happening. Our Savior was born. Our hope was born. It had to be an awesome thing to be able to witness all the freedom, all the answers to all the prayers. A little baby born, laying in a manger. But I have a 50 cent question for you. All that stuff is awesome, but how did the shepherds know how to find Jesus? You ever think about that? How did the shepherds know how to find Jesus? I mean, the angel didn't break down and go into Bethlehem and you turn left at Farmer Johnson's old barn 
and you go down a quarter mile and there'll be a big tree and there will be kind of a lean-to and there's a manger under the lean-to. Go there. Didn't give them that kind of instruction. So how do they figure it out? How do they know where to go? One of the things I love the most about the Word of God is that you can read it and see things on so many different levels and so many different depths. And our God is so awesome that he built stories into the stories that we read in the Word of God. They knew how to find Jesus because of three clues that the angel gave them. All right, One was that it was in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. Okay, So he gave them the city. The second thing that he gave them was that the baby was going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. And the third thing that the angel gave them was that the baby was going to be placed in a manger. Crystal clear, right? David, swaddling cloths, manger. Okay, um, so we got Bethlehem. Where are we going to find it? Well, here's the key. See, we don't understand what those shepherds understood in the day. Bethlehem, the city of David, was where the temple had shepherd priests that would watch over the flocks of animals that would be used in the rituals in the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? You following me so far? So, these shepherds would watch over these sacred animals that were kept purified and clean so that they could be used in these ceremonies. In Bethlehem, the number one animal that was raised there were lambs. The sacrificial lambs that were used in the temple. So when the priest would come in and offer a lamb, shed the blood for the forgiveness of the family that was paying to have that lamb offered in their name, that, that lamb was raised in Bethlehem. When the lambs were born, I'm going somewhere with this, when the lambs were born, these shepherd priests would birth them in a special cave on the middle of the, the, the field where they were kept. There was a manger in there, and they would take these lambs, and they would purify them and clean them with salt, and then they would swaddle them in special cloths. It wasn't just an average, everyday, torn piece of material. These were specialized cloths for their sacred temple use to wrap these lambs with when they were born so that the lambs couldn't damage themselves. Because if it was going to be offered as a sacrifice, it had to be without spot or blemish. It had to be perfect. It couldn't damage itself in any way. So these shepherd priests would wrap this newborn lamb in this cloth and then place it in a manger until it would calm down and get its wits about it and it was safe to unwrap it and let it go be with its mother. Jesus. Catch this. Jesus. This is how awesome God is. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the place where the sacrificial lambs were born. He was wrapped in the same swaddling cloth that the sacrificial lambs were wrapped in. And he was laid in the same manger that the sacrificial lambs were laid in. What does the Bible call Jesus? 
They, it calls him the sacrificial lamb for our sins. Even in his birth, Jesus was letting the whole world know why he was there, what he had come for, that he was there to sacrifice his life as our lamb and pay the price for the sins that we could not pay the price for. He came to make a way where we couldn't find a way on our own. He came to help us because we couldn't help ourselves. And that's the beauty of grace. It's that we can't earn it. We can't conjure it up on our own. It's a free gift that God gives us through his son, Jesus. His grace, his mercy, the forgiveness of our sins, building a bridge that we can never build between him and us again, paying the price for sin. That is so beautiful to me. I want to talk to you a little bit about grace this morning. Because when I say grace, probably we got a lot of different pictures of grace in our heads. Like if I were going to say sports car, you're probably going to picture whatever sports car you like. You know, just in general. It's like a loose term, you know. So some of you are picturing Camaros. Some of you are picturing Corvettes. Some of you are picturing Mustangs or Maseratis or or Ferraris, you know, different things. But as far as the Bible is concerned, there's only one solid definition of grace. And it has nothing to do with your experience. It has nothing to do with what you may or may not have been taught in churches in, in the past. It has everything to do with what the Bible's definition is. And not about you, but I'm going to go with the Bible's definition of grace. It's because of his grace that he saved us. It's because of his grace that he did what he did and all of those lives earlier in the service today. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. It says in verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Everybody say grace this morning. By grace, you have been saved. Not because of anything you did. The only credit that we can have in this process is accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He did everything before that. He does everything after that because we can't do it in and of ourselves. All we do is pray that prayer and step out in faith and let him begin to work in us and change us. It is by his grace. Now, this is what grace means. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness in favor of God. Everybody say unmerited. unmerited. Say undeserved. <laughs> say unearned. It's the unearned favor of God. That's what grace is. It blows me away to think that God loves us enough to give us something that we can never pay for on our own because he loves us so much. And I think sometimes we can get caught up with the noise of the world and we lose sight of the fact that this whole thing gets no more complicated than God loved us and he poured his life out for us to set us free and give us something we could not earn on our own. And that's the beauty of this Christmas season God poured his grace out in the form of Jesus for you and for me. That is awesome to me. 
That's exciting to me. And it makes me want to shout right now. I just want to stop preaching and just shout for 20 minutes for how awesome God is. To do that for me. You know what? Because I don't know about how it works in your life, but I know how jacked up I used to be. I know how broken I used to be, and I know what God has done in my life, how he's healed, how he's restored, how he's given hope, how he's given purpose, how he has done what was undoable for myself. God is awesome, and his grace is powerful, and we don't deserve any of it. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Like when we get into church environments like this, you know, like there's this subtle unspoken Thing where, like in, in some church circles, not in all church circles, but we get really good at, at awarding behavior modification instead of pushing people towards life transformation that can only come from a relationship with Jesus. And because of that, we, we begin to think of things like, like on different levels, you know, like you got good people and you got bad people. And then somewhere in the middle, you got like good, bad people. In church, you know, and I should always think of myself as like, well, I'm not bad, and I know I'm not like super good. I'm kind of like a good, bad person. Like, I love God, and, and I'll try to get close to him, you know, but I used to think, I love God, I'll, I'll get close to him, but if you make me mad, I'll probably punch you in the throat, too. You know what I mean? There's nothing good, bad. Just a good, bad kind of thing. And we think, like, even in society, we're tiered out, and we think of things in levels, you know, it's like upper class, middle class, lower class, and you're trying to work your way up from one class to the other because that's the definition of success. You know, we define things in levels and we find ourselves trying to earn our way, but that doesn't equate to our relationship with God because it's grace-driven and grace-oriented. And you can't, you can't approach, approach it that way because you become pressurized. And you become guilt-driven. You ever experienced that in your walk with God where you felt like you had to perform a certain way or you felt like that somehow you weren't worthy and you had to kind of earn your way up from being like from bad to good and somewhere in the middle you go from good, bad to good, bad to bad, gooder, hopefully you'll get to good, you know, and it just doesn't work that way with him. I... I remember when I was a kid, man, I used to love to play video games, and I still do. We got any gamers in the house today? Yeah, I guess I a few hands. I used to play games, and, and I used to love to play Tecmo Super Bowl. You guys ever play that? Yeah. I used to love that game. But when I, when I bought Tecmo Super Bowl, I was like in my early teens or whatever it was, and I didn't have the money. So I had to do something called earn it. Yeah. I had to earn it. So I got a lawnmower, and I started cutting the neighbor's yards, doing odd jobs, anything I could to get the money to pay for the game. And I figured out something. Y'all remember you could put stuff on layaway pretty easy? So I put Tecmo Super Bowl on layaway because I wanted to make sure I had my copy. You know how layaway works. Like You're going to buy something, but you're not really buying it. They're just going to put a sticker on it and say that it's yours, and they're going to put it on a shelf somewhere in the back. So it's yours, but you still got to earn the money to pay for it. And once you paid for it, then you can get full access to the game that you have set aside, you know. And I thought, I'm going to set this thing on layaway, and it's mine even though it's not mine, and I'm going to earn it, and I'm going to pay it, pay for it. And and I finally earned the money, and I paid for that joker, and I walked out of there, and I felt like king of the world, you know. But I think sometimes in our relationship with God, we've got kind of a layaway mindset. 
You know what I mean? Where, where we know that it's ours, and it's got our sticker on it, and we know that God's given it to us, but for some reason we got in our minds that God takes it, and he puts it on the shelf in the back until we earn the right to fully access it. Until we earn enough God points and we get enough stickers by our names to have full access to his provision or to have full access to his healing or to have full access to the blessing of God in our lives. You know, we've got, we've got to, to, to pray harder and, and fast longer and worship with more intensity and live our lives more pure and more holy than anybody else. Not that there's anything wrong with going after God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because the Bible says to do that. But when we're driven by that to get something from God rather than offering it up to Him freely out of who we are, something's broken in the process because we don't understand how grace works. You can't earn it. You can't earn it. If you could earn it, then it wouldn't be grace. Romans 11, verse six even says that. It says, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. If we had to earn it, it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be freely given to now. I'm messing with some of your theology right now because you've always been taught you have got to pay some kind of price. You've got to earn. You have got to. And there's always growth in your relationship with God. And as you draw closer to him out of a relationship with him, he'll reveal a little bit more of himself to you. And you'll become a little bit more sensitive to his presence as you draw closer to him. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about here, though. I'm talking about feeling like we've got to check boxes and hit levels and earn the love that God has already given us so freely. Guys, you don't have to earn any of it. He already gave all of it to you. Listen, there is nothing left in the tank to earn. When he poured out his love, he gave all of his love. 100% full backstage pass access to it. You got it all. You got it all. Nothing holding it back. You don't have to do one thing. There is not one drop of blood from Jesus somewhere out there that you don't already have access to. There is not, there, there is nothing that isn't already available to you because through God's grace, he's given it to us all freely. How amazing is that? Absolutely amazing to me. I, Now think about grace. Like in the Bible, there's this word that keeps coming up over and over again to just used for grace, and it's a word called charis. And it just means grace and kindness. Charis is grace and kindness. God's charis for us. God shows charis to us. God shows grace to us. And a lot of us might be familiar with that, but before charis was a word that we use in church to use to connect with God's grace and mercy for us, it was a word in Greek that existed before the church grabbed it to use it for itself. And charis was a word, it does mean grace, it does mean kindness or unmerited favor um, or undeserved favor that's shown to people. It does mean that. But it stands for a whole transactional process in the ancient Greek world. It stands for 
a, a charitable business transaction that would have taken place in the Greek society. And I'll show you how this works because we, when we think God's grace, we think God gives grace to us, but that's not what Karis entirely means. I need two volunteers this morning. Who wants to help me out? I need, I need two people. I need real fast, real fast. Okay, I've got Jim. Russell, come on up. Russell's like volunteer man around here, here lately. I'll show you how this works. Come on and uh, stand up here with me, even though Russell's going to make me look like a little bitty guy. Come on up here. So we got you stand here, you stand here. Yeah, right here, apart from each other. Now, this is how Karis would work. We think Jim's going to be God. Okay, don't let that go to your head. Russell is going to be sorry loser man. Okay, so Russell's sorry loser man. This is how Karis would work in the Greek society. You would have a superior in society that had provisions and supplies. And then you would have somebody who was considered inferior in society who did not have an abundance of provision and supply. And so the superiors would offer their supplies to the inferiors through transaction, they would sell the goods to these people. They would be suppliers for them, okay? Have-nots would buy from the halves. Here's the thing, though, in Greek society. Jim, because he was a superior, could not directly interact with an inferior because it would dirty him. And he didn't want to get Russell's dirty stuff on his pure, high-class hands. Okay, so what would happen is this. There would be a third party that would come in and they would act as a broker between Jim and Russell. And they would take the goods that Jim had to offer and they would turn around as, and as a as the third party, sell it to Russell. I'm gonna give it to you. You pay the price, I give you the goods. He pays the price, I transfer the goods. But every once in a while, the broker would have the freedom of choice in going out and finding people in society that did not have any way to pay for the goods. They didn't have any way to pay for the food or the supplies. And so he would go back to the guy who's a supplier and say, hey, I found somebody who's in need, but they don't have the money to pay for it. And the superior guy would say, well, look, I've got the stuff but I can't just give it freely. A, a price has to be paid for the goods. So the broker, every once in a while, would caress the transaction. And the broker would pay for the goods themselves and then turn around and freely give it to the person that was in need. It was a special transaction that would happen, not all the time, but every once in a while, when they felt charitable and they saw somebody who was really in need, the broker could caress or show grace and undeserved favor to this person and pay for the goods themselves and transfer it over to the person that couldn't pay for it on their own. This is how it works in your relationship with God. This is exactly how it works. Because we were in need. We were in need of restoration. We were in need of forgiveness. And the only person that had it to give was God. But God could not come into direct contact with us because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. So Jesus said this 
Father, they're in need. They can't pay for it on their own. I want to give them the forgiveness and the restoration that can only come from you. And the Father said, that's fine, but a price has to be paid. Because the wages of sin is death. And there has to be a price paid to pay that penalty of sin. And Jesus said, I'll pay the price. And he stood between us and the Father. And he took on the full punishment for our sin. And he paid the price that we can never pay on our own. And once he had paid for your sin and paid for my sin, he turned around and he said, now it's been bought and it's been paid for. Now I'm going to freely give to you what I have purchased on my own. This is how grace works in our relationship with God. We don't earn it. We can't do anything to deserve it. But Jesus steps in as a go-between between us and the Father. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the bridge between us and God. He paid the price for our forgiveness, and then he turned around and he caressed it to us. He freely gave it to us as an act of grace. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the love of God for you and for me? Can we give God praise for that in the house this morning? Man, it's so awesome when you think about it that way. Thank you guys so much. Y'all can grab a seat. This is how it works. He freely gives it to us. This changes the game once you finally understand this, guys. Because Hebrews 4, 16, it says this. It talks about how we don't have to be ashamed when we come to God anymore. And we don't have to hold back. We don't have to let anything hinder us coming to God. Because we already know God's motivation to us. It says, then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So you don't have to be apprehensive when you go to God. Let me break this down. This is what this is saying. Hey, when you make a mistake, when you blow it, when you have a time of need in your life, you can always go to God's throne with confidence because you know he is going to show his grace to you and forgive you and restore you. That word mercy there, that word mercy, mercy is, is compassion, it's undeserved compassion that's given to someone, listen now, with a desire to help. Mercy is undeserved compassion given to someone with a desire to help. God's desire is to show his love and his mercy and his grace to us. But his motivation is to help us. That's a game changer for me. And then if I mess up and I blow it, I can go to him and ask for forgiveness and he's not going to hit me with a lightning bolt and he's not going to take the baseball bat of his holy judgment and beat me until I understand what he's trying to, to teach me. He's going to show love and grace and his mercy and he's going to help. You know what that means? That means he comes to us and goes, hey, I get it. I get it. You're jacked up. Hey, look at the person next to you and go, hey, you know what? You're jacked up. You're jacked up. Everybody here is jacked up. I'm jacked up too, without Jesus. He says, hey, I get it. You're jacked up. And this is what he says. It's okay to not be okay. But I love you too much to leave you that way. 
So I'm going to help you up. I'm going to dust off your knees. And I'm going to set you on the straight path. And I am going to help you figure this out one step at a time. Out of my love and out of my mercy. So that I can teach you to stand on your own two feet. And not make this same mistake again. Like any loving father would do for their children. That's the God that we serve. And he does it freely. He does it freely as he changes us from the inside out. That's amazing. That's why the Bible says that grace actually teaches us to say no to sin and ungodliness. Because his mercy is there to help us grow out of that. What a beautiful picture. How many of you guys have ever heard of Team Hoyt? Team Hoyt. Not many people have. Maybe you'll recognize what I'm saying when I go into the story just a little bit. Team Hoyt is a father and son team. And the father's name is Dick and the son's name is Rick. When Rick was born, the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. And it caused severe brain trauma. And it impacted him, gave him several disabilities. He couldn't speak on his own. He couldn't walk on his own. He couldn't move his arms, really. And all he could really do is just kind of move his, his head. So from the neck up, he was kind of okay, but he had severe disability from the neck down. And his mother and father did their best to raise him, and they figured out that even with his disabilities, he was actually a pretty intelligent person. And so they went to some people and they got them to develop this technology. Now, you guys would recognize this when I tell you about this, but they developed this technology where Rick could blink his eyes and kind of pat his head up on this specialized um, device that they made. And by blinking and by tapping his head, he could type out letters and space the sentences and communicate to people for the first time in his life. Now, that technology, it developed into where a person could type it and then a computer would read the words and say it to people. Stephen Hawking's made that real famous. But that technology started with Rick Hoyt. His parents went to somebody and they developed that specially for him. Now, somebody in Rick's school when he was in high school was tragically injured in an accident. And the school and the community rallied together and they did a fundraiser for this student. And they decided what they were going to do to raise funds and raise awareness was they were going to run a 5K race. And all the proceeds would go to the family to help pay the bills. And so when Rick heard that the fundraiser was taking place, he said, to his dad, I want to help my friend. And I want to help raise money for him. And dad said, okay. And he was thinking, you're going to, we're going to support him. We're going to try to write up something to help raise awareness for what's going on. And, and Rick said, no, I want to run the race. And his father said, I knew when he wanted to run the race, there's only one way that was going to happen he couldn't run on his own he said I knew I was going to have to be the one to run the race and to push him and that's what happened 
Father started training in the short amount of time that they had. And the time for the 5K came. And he pushed his son in a wheelchair from the start to the finish because his son couldn't run on his own. And at the end of the race, Rick looked, at, looked up at his dad and his dad said, man, how do you feel? And what Rick said changed his dad's life forever. His, his son said, I feel alive for the first time in my life. For the first time in my life, I don't feel like I'm handicapped and I don't have a disability. And his dad said, when he said that, I decided in that moment that I was going to do whatever I had to do to make sure that my son could experience that moment time and time and time again. So when the dad wasn't working, he began training. He began working out. He began running. He began swimming so that they could run races together, so that they could do triathlons together. And today, this dad has run with his son over a hundred marathons and has done over, listen to this number, over 250 triathlons since that day so that his son could experience what it was like to be alive and he could experience what it was like to not have to feel like he was handicapped in that moment. And here's the beauty of the whole thing is that when they run, his dad is the one that's running. And Rick is just along for the ride, enjoying it. And when they do the triathlons and it's time to swim, it's the father that's swimming. And he's pulling his son in a life raft. And when they're out in these races and it's time to ride a bike, it's the father who is pedaling the bike. And it's the son who's along for the ride. And every time they cross a finish line, every time they cross the finish line, it's the father who is doing all the work at the end of the race. But it's his child who is enjoying the moment of victory like he did it on his own. I can't think of a better picture of God's grace and how it works in our life. Because we can't do it on our own. It's his strength. It's his power. It's his restoration. It's his forgiveness. He does it. But then the beauty of the whole thing is that he turns around and he says, yeah, I did all of it for you, but this is your victory. This is your freedom. I paid the price for it, but I gave it to you. This is yours. This is yours. Even though it's all on me, this is yours. And we get to enjoy it. Like it's ours. And we get to experience freedom. And we get to experience life beyond this world in His presence. 
And for a moment, we get, we, we get to experience that same freedom that Rick gets to experience. But it's, it's all on Jesus. It's all on God. It's nothing to do with us. That's the beauty of grace. And that's what's so awesome about the Christmas season. Because all of this started with Jesus. This little baby in a manger. Born in the place where the sacrificial lambs were born. So that he could give his life to pay that price for us. And care us to us what we couldn't pay for on our own. That is the God that we serve. That's beauty. That's beauty. That's beauty. And I don't want you to leave here today without experiencing that grace in its fullness for yourself. So heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around in here this morning.